Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All things in the name of love. With your host, Dr. Erica Riesberg. Music performed and written by Megan Moreau. Can you help me redefine truth and preservation of our soul shine? I can feel it, yours and mine. Close your eyes and witness it inside. In your bones, you will know. Trust and let go. All Things in the Name of Love. Episode 39, Showing Up in Love with Trisha Barker. Trisha Barker is an author and a community college professor, and she had a near-death experience back in the 90s, and she talks about how that has completely transformed her life into understanding spirituality and how important love and action is in your daily life. Trisha, it is such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Trisha, I am so grateful that you're on the show today. It's such an honor to have you. Oh, thank you. I love the title of your show, and I know it was divinely inspired, so I'm happy to talk about that unconditional love and just chat with you. Yeah, so you you had a wild experience. You had a near-death experience, and you've written a memoir about it. And I want to go deeply in there because, you know, near-death experiences, from what I understand, I haven't had one, are so mind-blowingly opening. Yeah, yeah. Some people call them, you know, full kundalini awakenings, but uh, whatever the case, you're not the same, and it's jarring. Uh, Mm. The before and after is usually quite dramatic for people, that whatever it is you imagined through faith or whatever it is you didn't think about or didn't care about, you know, in that spiritual realm, suddenly it's just blown open and that veil has a certain thinness to it. Uh, So there's uh, a lot that has to be assimilated and a lot that has to be learned after a near-death experience. Yeah. So, so talk to me about that because, because I, I mean, I didn't have anything like that. I just felt this calling to go deeper. And so my journey has been gradual, intense, and gradual at the same time, so I can assimilate things more comprehensible to my 3D experience. Yeah, and I recommend that. I don't really recommend <laughs> near-death experience. <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> it's kind of for really stubborn people, I think, who need to be hit over the head really hard. <laughs> and, uh, and there's that physical component of dying, which, yeah. you know, that is painful. And I think what is so profound about the near-death experience, though, is the complete giving up of the body. So, you know, many people meditate and many people have a spiritual awakening or an out-of-body experience almost everyone on the spiritual path has had a multitude of spiritual experiences but to go from alive and connected to your body and then dead and totally disconnected from it and you could care less about that body on the ground that's a different experience And, and a lot of people fear death and one thing i keep telling them 
is you're always going to fear it. I mean, I'm in this body now. So if someone came in my door and pointed a gun at my head, I mean, I have total assurance of where I'm going, but I'm not going to be excited about the transition, you know, the right, transition right. out of this physical form is, is jarring. But I know that once you're over there in that place of peace and beauty, that there's no attachment to this, that there's just this truth, this love, this understanding, and this eternal um, quality to it. That's really amazing. So how did that come back into your day-to-day existence? Well, I was agnostic before my near-death experience. So I was in college and I was, um, I grew up in, in a religious home, but I looked around at churches and I thought, no, nah, I'm not really that interested in, in the judgments and, and that area of, um, of religion. But when I had the near-death experience after an accident and spinal surgery, there was a lot uh, that I had to incorporate. The first thing was I was in physical pain. And so the angels on the other side, and I titled the book Angels in the OR because the angels were part of the healing team that was there in the operating room. And they were profoundly intelligent. And they had assured me that my body would heal, that I would walk, that I would be fine. So I began to connect with them in those days back home when I was in pain, I would close my eyes and really just feel their healing power working on my back and working on the bones in my back. And I didn't know at times, you know, if this was extreme imagination, but I could feel that light and I could feel that heat on my back. And, and then of course, you know, I I recovered well. And so I'm, I'm sure that they continued to work with me and work Uh, with me in those months after the accident. So that was the first thing is meditation became very easy. So for anyone who's had a spiritually transformative experience or a near-death experience, I always say, meditate. (laughs) That's your way to start connecting again with that other side. And it was, the connections were beautiful. So I would call on God, I would call on my angels and be transported. I mean, like, in those weeks and months after the accident, there were times I would get so far out in meditation that my soul would kind of wonder, do I want to come back to this body? Am I dead? Am I alive? (laughs) Is this what I want? You know, because there was so much physical pain to heal. Mm -hmm. And because this is something that is a curiosity with me, my beautiful brain, my head brain, I love my brain. (laughs) <laughs> there are days when I can meditate and nothing will come in and other days where I hear the mind chatter regularly. Do you have mind chatter? Yeah, this is what I tell people. Like a, a regular meditation practice is so important because sometimes it's just turning off our brains and getting our bodies into relaxation mode. Mm-hmm. And other times, you know, the head might just open up and your soul might go flying out. Right. You might have this beautiful meditation that is so, uh, it transports you and it, it is healing in some way. So I say just, you know, just like an artist or a writer, you keep coming back to the canvas, you keep coming back to the pen and paper with meditation, you just keep coming back to it because mm-hmm. you never know. And in times of great stress, I think meditation is just a breathing practice for me. It's just to calm my heart, to calm my mind, 
but when I'm in a better place and, you know, many weeks of meditation and lots of peace, then I find, oh, I can just access this healing center mm. or I can access this greater, this greater knowledge through meditation. But yeah, right after the near-death experience, I say my soul was loosened in a sense. It, it wasn't mm. so tied to this body. So meditation was very easy. It was just easy to fly and have lucid dreams and to get yeah. out of body. So how long ago was that? That was 1994. Okay. A ways back, yeah. <laughs> so as you've reintegrated, I'll say, back into being a spirit in a body, have you seen this experience from a different perspective? You know what is interesting about the memory is it it's always vivid and it never changes. And I have opened up different layers of it and levels of it. And I think as we talk with other people who've had these experiences and they kind of pin us down and say, well, was it this, you know, were the, what were the angel's eyes like? Did they have wings? And you have to start describing, you know, these mm -hmm. moments a little bit more for the sake of people. And sometimes you don't even think about certain things. It wasn't until a researcher asked me what my vision was like outside of body that I realized, well, it was like I was a big eye that could see in all directions. So oh, it was up cool. above my body and I could see there, you know, there wasn't the limitation of behind the head. I could see behind me. I could see above me. I could see below me and I could see everything all at one time, but I could also focus in on, you know, particular things. And so mm -hmm. just describing the vision that we have not in body, you know, you get better with words and I'm, I know that you teach and I'm a, I teach at a community college level as well. And, and it, it is uh, challenging words and communication to describe these otherworldly experiences. And mm -hmm. so I'm really grateful for all the people who pushed me to say things a little bit more clearly and think about it. And I think that's why it's important for other experiencers to talk with one another because you'll hear something yeah. and go, Oh, that wasn't my experience, or yes, this was my experience. Interesting. So I'm, I'm guessing, and I, you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that you have that, that deeper knowing still, on a, like that's just innate now? Yeah, so I, I feel my angels more now than I did many years ago, like right after the accident when I healed and got back to college, there's a, a portion of in my book where one of my friends asked me, Hey, do you see angels? And for a moment, my vision opened up and I saw everyone's angels around them. I saw, you know, yeah. about two guardian angels around people. And then I saw souls that were dead and perhaps, you know, kind of lost here and still walking wow. around. And the sidewalk was full of entities and then the vision closed really quickly because I thought, wow, that would be distracting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not know who, who's really here and who's not and who's angel and who's, uh, who's uh, actually alive. And then it hit me that we're, there's so much guidance all around us. And it's mm -hmm. taken me many years to get to a place where I will call on my angels for protection and guidance and where I'll open up that moment of vision if I'm afraid, say, in traffic. Uh, because I still don't like driving <laughs> because my accident happened because yeah. of my car. And I'll see the angels like protect me in certain mm. ways. They'll open up this 
this uh, way of, of communicating to show me that I'm fine and that, you know, the semi isn't going to come over into my lane and that I'm going to yeah. make it to my destination and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. How is it that you relate with people who don't understand what you know? Well, I don't have to talk about it. <laughs> you <know>? Okay. <laughs> you know, that I think the last three years, since 2016, I've been blogging and making YouTube videos and, and openly talking about the subject. But from 1994 to about 2008, the only time I told the story was once a year inside each class that I taught. And so I didn't know when it was going to come, but I would just tell the story to students. And then, then I would gauge if other people brought up, you know, a loved one passing and they were in deep grief or, you know, they wanted to talk about philosophy and what happens when we die, then I mm -hmm. might bring it up. But I, I let others show me their level of acceptance around that and you know I didn't openly get into arguments about <laughs> mm -hmm. you know about these things but but I did um yeah I wasn't really a public person around the near-death experience until 2008 when I met a group in IANS and I thought I would just tell this story once but there's a researcher in Dallas and she liked my story and researchers liked stories like mine because there's a verifiable detail and so right. this proves that consciousness continues on after life and or after death and uh, so I told my story on the bio channel and I thought that's it you know like you know that's good enough <laughs> you know one time yeah you know, people can and a lot of people love that show but but people continue to talk about this subject because I think it connects us to something beyond ourselves and it connects us to that energy of heaven to that energy of angels and and really all that other people need is love so yeah. you don't have to bring up anything about spirituality that if someone is angry and hurting you can ask them what are you going through you know this happened with students many times you know junior high students a, a young boy might be violent and then you find out later that his dad beats him up and his mom is left and that's why he's violent you know with other people in the school and then you can ask him what he wants from life and you know like mm -hmm. love and action is the most important thing and that was one of the messages from the other side is that love is all that we take with us so you know mm -hmm. we're born we die and how much love are we spreading in between that moment of birth and death and that's what it's all about and that idea of that's all we take with us like so many near-death experiencers and i hope you have a sense of humor you can cut this out if you don't but uh so many near-death experiencers talk about you know all that we're chasing all that we're doing here and this one guy i didn't get to interview him but he said yeah well you can't just shove all that money up your butt and take it with you <laughs> <laughs> You, know, you just don't get to do that. <laughs> no, no. You got to enjoy it a little bit. That's kind of what it is. It's funny. Love is what you get to take with you. So yeah. it's like if you think all the memories that you're creating, the painful ones, you don't have to take with you. Whether you created them or whether other people did, they're not, they're not yours to keep. That's what you leave on the ground. 
you know, what you take with you is the love you spread, the love you experienced, the love you gave to this world, the good you did. And that's, that's all. And so yeah. that's your treasure in eternity is love. Mm. I love that because I feel when I'm connected, I just feel this deep, deep, peaceful, encompassing love that I know isn't me. And yet it is within me. And I have a dream to have everyone awaken to this because it's just such a beautiful thing to connect to. It's not like my ego wants this. It's like, no, 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 I want you to have this because it's just so divine and beautiful and, and what you are. Yeah, and we would all be a lot nicer to each other if everyone had that access to it because you don't have to take anything from anyone. You have your own source of love that's just coming to you, that's flowing constantly through you and, and to you. And it's not dependent on what other people do. It's your connection to source. It's like it's like plugging into you know a socket. You know everyone can plug in. Everyone can plug into that yeah. love, and we'd be a lot better if everyone knew how much love is available to them. And that's my biggest struggle is when I find people who are hurting, and find people who are very materially centered. And you know I don't have this, and I don't have love, and I I'm a mess. And I'm like yeah, we've got to switch that somehow to you're loved. Like yeah. you really deeply love. If you knew how much you were loved, you'd take a breath and you yeah. would just take a beat and go, wow, this is exciting. <laughs> it's amazing because, well, it's this, this perception that we have that we're either not worthy or we're separate and... And it's a fear. And for me, because I haven't had a near-death experience, my process has been going uh, using body talk to get to my subconscious and finding all of the limiting beliefs and programming that I've had within me to remove so that I can be more of the love that I am within. And it's just such... And I don't think there's any more important work in the world than to love yourself, truly. And to know how deeply you are loved. That was what shocked me in the near-death experience. The angels were shocking, you know, of course, yeah. <laughs> to see these higher beings. But when I got to the part in my near-death experience where I was in the presence of God, I was so excited. I mean, first of all, it was just like, wow, I am loved this deeply. I am treasured this deeply. I'd never felt it in completion. It's like I felt I've got parts from different people, you know, parts from, you know, parents and family and parts from a romantic affair and parts from, you know, but nothing that was so complete that I was like, oh, every part of me is adored and taken care of and treasured and I am safe and free to love because there's no body holding me back. There's no, 
you know, there is just this soul. So the soul of me, I know, is loved by God, even when I make mistakes. And I think, you know, that's one thing I talk a lot about is being human. So coming back yeah. to this body and making mistakes, well, we all do. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, we're not uh, perfection and, and we are limited and we have limited brains and limited experiences. And so to be human is to mess up, but our souls are a part of God and our souls long to do right. And I think it was, I think someone was telling me of, recently that reminded me of the Dalai Lama and his conversations with generals and, you know, who had killed um, monks. And he said for him, he looked into the heart of these people and he said, surely there's a kernel of goodness, you know, that there is an awareness and a beauty inside everyone. And I, I, I believe that. I believe that there is you know, it can be so clouded by yeah. fear and judgment and, you know, all these things, but our souls are beautiful. Yeah. I, I have found that by tuning into that, I have so much deeper compassion for anyone that my old self would have thought was different or somehow separate from me. I've had the opportunity to to talk to homeless people a couple times and I see them. I don't see what society tells me I should see it, but I see them. And to have that level of compassion for something that I'm told is separate is just such such a powerful reminder of how how trivial our, our separation and illusions are. Yeah. And those judgments I've found are, you know, when you say homeless, you usually think if you live in America, a man carrying around, you know, a backpack and, you know, on the side of the street. But I've learned as a professor, you know, there was this older woman taking one of my classes and she wore these cute sweatshirts with things embroidered on it. And in my mind, I thought, oh, she's someone's grandmother and she's just taking this course to become a better writer. And how cute is that? And I pictured her living in a brick home and, you know, having this family Mm -hmm. come to see her. And I later found out she was homeless, that she had uh, no family living. She never had kids. She'd just gotten divorced. She lost her job and she was in her late, late sixties and she was she put everything in storage, was living in her storage unit and the bus station and, and campus and taking one course just so that she could have access to computers wow. and to try to find a job and to have a safe, warm place most of the day. You know, a college yeah. is fairly safe. And I thought, how many people are on the edge in our society? So many are. I mean, even we've had community college adjunct professors end up homeless and sleeping in their cars, yeah. it happens. You don't have health insurance. You know, you don't mm-hmm. get paid much as an adjunct. And uh, and our idea of homeless itself is not really reality because so many people are struggling. And struggle is, you know, there's all these perceptions. Like people have perceptions of even me as a 
quote, you know, minor public figure, I'm like, yeah, guys, I'm still a community college professor and you don't get rich from books, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, but people call, right. you know, write to me asking for grants. And I'm like, wow, do you realize that my dental insurance doesn't cover the $10,000 worth of work? I mean, I mean, my teeth could fall out next month. You know? Right, right. <laughs> and I'm just like, let's get real here. We're yeah. all struggling. Even my friends who are, you know, like, make a lot of money, have really huge bills. <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's interesting. It's just pre people's perceptions of what is making it, what is famous, what is homeless. It's, it, it's inaccurate. Yeah, it is. Because that's not what we're supposed to get to. We're supposed to dive deep into finding that kernel of love that is within and once we cultivate that, it's so much easier to be loving to others. Yeah. And to realize that, you know, people's struggles behind the scenes are far greater than we often realize. Mm -hmm. And showing compassion for that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've been practicing in the past few months is the concept of grace, which sounds really nice. And it's really challenging because grace has so many different levels to it. It's compassion, it's gentleness, it's awareness, it's forgiveness. And, and trying to, first and foremost, be graceful to myself, not being a particularly gentle, like, I'm, my personality is not gentle. I'm very loving, but I give bear hugs. I don't, I don't gently pat myself often. So it's like the thought of being gentle with myself is such a different paradigm for me and it's so incredibly healing yeah that I, I find that I'm more gentle with other people than myself at times and a lot of people are you know mm -hmm. that you can, I can have compassion all day long for my students and then go, how did I mess up like this? <laughs> you know? yeah. And I was like, I just gave an A paper, you know, with quite a few typos. You know? Right. You know, so there's forgiveness that we, and, and grace that we give others that we sometimes don't give ourselves. And then, mm -hmm. then the flip side occurs too, you know, where we give ourselves grace and we're like, how can that person treat me badly when we don't realize everything that they're going through? Mm-hmm. So true, because it's, I think our society is, there's so much stimulus yeah. that it's really hard to stay grounded in oneself enough to recognize that people are complex. Yeah, yeah, that that constant flow of information that we have now on our phones and computers is disconnecting us from one another and we're seeing it 
in these younger generations, I force my students to have actual conversations with one another. You know, there's nothing more important than creating community and knowing each other's names and where they work and what they do and what their struggles are. And, and they're, they're capable of that connection. They're just not forced to do it face to face that often. And so I think building community is so vital. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. we're all connected and overstimulated and, and lost for hours in a stream of something that that isn't really bringing us true satisfaction and it's mm-hmm. it's a little unnerving it is i i spent i spent this year as a a garden manager of a community garden and it was a dysfunctional garden in terms of the fact that there were 50 people that didn't talk to each other wow and i was like okay guys we're going to have picnics we're going to have work parties we're going to actually sit and talk to each other and I didn't get a lot because it was the first year in like 10 years that anyone had done something. But I did get some, I got a nice mix of, I think the last one we had was about 15 people. And I was like, well, that's, that's a good first year because I didn't have any expectations, but it was like, come on guys, you're not, you're, you're in the next plot. You can talk to each other. It's okay. You're in a garden. You're connecting with the earth. You're getting a deeper sense of, of, of the interconnectivity of everything. So start with your neighbor. Yeah. I, it sounds like you're preaching to people the way I am too. I'm, I, this may sound silly, but I told my class for the first week, I'm going to show up 10 minutes late. And in that 10 minutes, I want them to know each other's names, everything about the other person that they want to share, that they feel comfortable sharing. That's and I will awesome. test them on how many people they know in that classroom. <laughs> and some classes were more extroverted than others. That's awesome. Hey, I know 10 people's names and I know where they work and I know what they want to major in and the clubs they're a part of. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it was really beneficial. We felt different as a class from that yeah. point. Because, you know, when the young man who had a speech impediment got up to give a speech, they were so supportive. You know, mm. like there wasn't, you know, the the same fear of, oh my God, you know, or just judgment or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. they might have felt had they not known him and they were all rooting for him. And I swear that when we have each other on our sides, the energy carries the whole class forward. And, and, you know, I think people forget, they think it's a competition and I'm like, no, you're actually, if you teach someone how to be a better writer, you're going to become a better writer. Yeah. So you can always and benefit from that teaching yourself and become better in the class and that we can all do well in the class and support one another. And, you know, my mission isn't to give a certain number of F's and D's. <laughs> I'd love to give all A's if they are. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That I understand. Oh, he brought in a memory of it. I taught adult ed for three years. And my first semester, I was very, very generous and just, <laughs> Like, write anything you want about American culture. <laughs> Life lesson, don't do that. Yeah. Um, and so one of my kids wrote, a, well, copied a paper about Bengal tigers. Didn't say anything about American culture or anything like that. So I called him on it. I said, you need to actually say why this is relevant to America. Why are Bengal tigers like World Wildlife Federation? Something. You have to tell me something about why you think this is important enough to write about. You put a little paragraph in. I don't I hit a lion on the front page. 
It's like, you don't even know your aunt. Okay, I love you. <laughs> but he wrote a paragraph about seeing one at a zoo once. And that was his connection to Bengal tigers. I was like, honey, you didn't really get these. I can't fail you. You're getting a D or you have to take to retake the class. And I don't think either one of us wants you to retake the class. <laughs> You're getting a D. But it was, it was just this, yeah, I had compassion because he, he didn't know how to write. And that wasn't my class. My class, I mean, I, I, I did what I could to teach them to write. And it was, it was a history class. Yeah. So it was really rough. It was like, okay, I want to help you, and I'm going to help you be, by being compassionate. And this was 1999. So, you know, I was just trying to be really compassionate and give him space. And at the same time, it's like, okay, that's not my job in terms of like, I don't have the skill sets to teach you how to write. That's not what my training is. I know I have the ability to teach you about American culture. Yeah, the liberal arts, there's a lot of blending. And, and I, I hear this from a lot of psychology and history professors. It's like students who are struggling with writing are going to struggle in most of liberal arts mm -hmm. because writing is a form of communicating your thoughts and clear writing shows clear thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that connection. And, and since we're a more scattered group of people because of technology writing has become more scattered because our thinking is more scattered right. someone's writing a paragraph and they look at a text message and then they answer something over here then they talk then they come back and continue writing and there isn't a stream of thought that stays coherent throughout yeah. the paper a lot of times and so i tell students to study in old school ways and to write papers the old school way shut off yeah. everything and just be there with microsoft word and your thoughts and then later put in the research and, and yeah the other oh yeah but yes it is it's fascinating the times that we live in yeah it's 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 such a i'm grateful for the technology and i've i've talked on other shows about my my skepticism about the reliance on it, but so I won't go there. I'm very grateful for the technology and I'm fascinated to see how dynamic it is in our connecting with others. Yeah, so I, I agree. Like, I'm so grateful for the past three years. I've met amazing people all over the world. I'm sure after our conversation, I'll think, wow, now I've talked with Erica and she's so wonderful. And, and, and yet then I'll move on. And two weeks later, I'll be talking to someone else. And, right. you know, of course you re remain connected to some people for long periods of time and then end up meeting them and, you know, going to their city or staying at their house. And, you know, the, there's friendships right. that are truly formed in this way. But a lot of times we just keep going, you know, and mm -hmm. keep connecting and, and meeting people all over the world. And it's, it's fascinating, but it's also, uh, I, I mean, it, it opens our minds to so much and opens us to the possibility of connection, but the real connections, you know, the people who might end up in the hospital this afternoon, who's going to be there? You know, mm -hmm. that's the other, <laughs> you know, element. Yeah. I might get, you know, 5,000 messages on Facebook, but who's going to be there holding my hand in the hospital. Right. Which is, something that we need to start cultivating in our culture again. 
Yeah. I'm doing what I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then I think one of the beautiful things that many near-death experiencers do and people who've gone through great grief is sitting with the dying or becoming death doulas or, you know, working in that way to be that community for people who are passing on because it doesn't scare me and it doesn't scare other near-death experiencers. Death is mentionable and something we can talk about and something we can, I, it's, it's odd, but I almost get a little excited when I'm with someone who's dying because I feel the light coming and I feel, oh, awesome. I feel the connection beginning to happen. And, and, you know, sometimes you can get a sense of the people who are waiting there for them, their ancestors. And it, it's invigorating. I mean, it's incredibly painful, incredibly painful for the people who are losing them. And, and of course, people who are in the middle of great loss, they often wonder why you want to have that connection. And I have to remind people because you're grieving, you know, you're losing right. your husband, your wife, your someone so incredibly close to your parents that you can't necessarily in that moment, not everyone is going to have that veil open. I mean, you're going to maybe go through a year of just deep grief and loss and physical yeah. pain and not having that person there. But if you're an outsider or even if you know you, you are close to someone and have that open, it is a great gift to know that the other side is there and that that love is waiting and that that transition is beautiful. I had uh, one of my maternal grandmother died in 2007, I think. And, um, no, 2000, I was in grad school a while ago, <laughs> a while ago. And I went to the funeral with my friend, Nancy, who, who's, a, who does channel energy. And she was drawn to hold my hand during the funeral. Well, I heard and saw what they felt during the funeral. I didn't pay attention to anything in the funeral because I was listening to my ancestors and going, why is she wearing glasses? She doesn't need glasses anymore. She's dead. Why did we get a donated them? And oh, they, they took off her nail polish. She really liked that. Why did they do that? And so I had this really fascinating discussion of my ancestors about my grandmother coming and they were so excited to see her and they were celebrating her and you're back. We've been waiting for you. We love you so much. And so I don't know what the funeral was because I had this crazy experience. And then we got done and my friend Nancy said, Erica, can we take a walk? And I said, yeah, sure. Why? She's like, I am so exhausted from channeling that for you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's like, That's amazing. Because I would have never experienced that otherwise. Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. It really was. <laughs> oh, so she just held that space for yeah. you. Yeah. Wow. She did. It was just so beautiful because I didn't know. And since then, I felt every family member transition. Wow. Yeah. And that's something I tell people that, you know, why, why is it important to maybe take a class with a medium? Because you learn from them, you know, you learn how to do this yourself. And any medium reading I've given, I've always said, let's pray 
that you feel this energy too, that, you know, it's confirmation for me and for you and that, and the best readings are when we both start hearing that person. And mm -hmm. I think, all right, cool. They've got it. <laughs> you know, like it, I think yeah. it's just, what do they call it? Uh, there's with near death experiencers, they call it the benign virus that once we start talking about the other side, <laughs> people get infected with that love and That's you know, awesome. that energy from the other side and it yeah. spreads. And I think the same thing with channels and mediums and other people who have these gifts and they share them, it opens up a part of other people's brains because we all can do this. Yeah. And it's just something that we haven't been taught. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to share with me? Oh, well, let's, let's see if the other side wants to say something to your listeners. I think to sum up maybe what we've talked about, if everyone takes, and it's so simple, just a few moments of meditation at the beginning or end of their day, and really stay in that awareness that God is a loving energy. And if there's something that you want and you phrase it in a positive way and you set an intention for nine days, 10 days, a month, whatever, and you stay in that childlike faith, that that's really the key to life change is staying in that flow of God, staying in that childlike innocence of love for God, knowing that you're loved. Then you go out into this world and you do what you want to do, it can't help but change lives. It, it can't, and you know, it may not be exactly what you, you want it to be because there's other people who are at play and there's other systems that are at play, but you will have a beautiful effect on this world and you will spread light in the way that, that you are meant to spread light and you will keep staying in that energy and that flow of God, which is vital to all that we want to do in this world. Thank you. How can my listeners find you? Well, you can find my blog or YouTube channel pretty easily, but my blog is Trisha, T R I C I A, Barker, B A R K E R, N D E dot com. And I do have a YouTube channel. Uh, and you just put my name, probably Trisha Barker, in YouTube and will find me pretty easily. I'm, I'm out there <laughs> just with a Google search, and I'd love to connect. Thank you so, so much for your time and your discussion with me. Oh, thank you for your show and for the love you spread. Thank you. The action item of the week is to find out where and how you can show up with love in action. What does that mean specifically? Well, how do you show up for someone? Do you show up with judgment or do you just show up with caring? Tune into that and find out how more fully you can show up in the highest way you possibly can for another. Until next time, I bid you the highest peace, love, and prosperity. Namaste. Can you help me redefine truth and preservation of our soul shine? I can feel it yours and mine Close your eyes and witness it inside In your bones you will know Trust and let go and let it
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.